With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Hoopsology. My name is Justin Goodrum, and along with Matt Thomas, our goal is to bring you quality basketball content from all over the Hoops world. Before we jump into the show, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast to receive our latest episodes from journalists, authors, athletes from all over the basketball world. If you have a comment or question, please email us at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Now enjoy the show. He is the sports editor for The Nation, the host of the Edge of Sports podcast, and he is the author of The Kaepernick Effect. We welcome Dave Zirin onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Dave? It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on to the show. And we we got copies of the book and just reading through it, it was really illuminating just to see how Kaepernick's effect on sports really was wide ranging compared to what you see on the media. Usually they focus on just Kaepernick himself, but it had huge ramifications all over sports and all over society. So I just want to ask you, was this a basic question? What was your motivation for the book? Just taking it in this different direction that, that you typically see from the news media concerning this topic. Well, first, let me just underline and highlight what you're saying. I mean, you are absolutely correct in terms of uh, if we just leave this to the mainstream media, the Kaepernick story will be just about Colin Kaepernick when the effect is going to get forgotten, buried, or even erased. And that's the effect that I wanted to tell because it's been erased before. And when I say it's been erased before, that's how I start talking to you about the motivation for the book. Um, I was talking with a couple of years ago to 1968 Olympian John Carlos, who of course raised his fist on the medal stand in Mexico City. I'd written John's memoir with him almost a decade ago. So we've been, we've been tight since then. And John said to me in a very offhand way, did you know that there were all kinds of kids after 68 putting their fists up at track meets and high schools and all over? And I was like, what? I know I didn't know that. And I thought I was very well read on this subject. And we did a book together and I did not know that. And I immediately had all these questions like, who were these quote unquote kids? And how did this affect them? And what happened to them on their team after they did this? And it was really impossible to answer these questions. It's been over 50 years. But that made me think about all of the sort of one-off stories, some of which I've written, that were about like this particular high school where a kid took a knee and was kicked off the team, or this particular high school where the entire team took a knee and the opposing fans threw garbage on their heads, or this particular cheerleader who took a knee and rocked her entire school. And I, like I said, I've even written some of these one-offs without contextualizing it in terms of the fact that hundreds, if not thousands of young athletes started doing this in 2016 after Kaepernick took that knee. That's the effect. I think Colin Kaepernick's great legacy to the history of sports, politics, and struggle is that by taking that knee, he created a language that other people could emulate. It was almost like a Rosetta Stone or a key by which they could showcase their own politics by taking that knee during the anthem. And that choice of doing it in the anthem is so important because it's saying quite directly and quite forthrightly, uh, there's a gap between what this country promises and what it delivers. So there I am, it's the start of the pandemic, I'm calling all these folks, calling young people, calling teenagers, 
which was a little odd, you know, trying to get them to talk to me about um, the Kaepernick effect and how it affected their lives and what happened to them. And, you know, I learned so much and we can talk about it like from speaking with them. I mean, I mean, one of the things I learned is like that this was all over the country, red state, blue state, all these weird false divisions that the mainstream political media puts forward doesn't really explain at all why people took a knee in rural Georgia and Seattle, Washington and upstate New York and Beaumont, Texas and California and Idaho. I mean, just a huge mix of folks, huge mix of sports. And this was enough for me. This was going to be the book. I was going to save these stories uh, for future generations. They would know it wasn't just Colin. But then the summer of 2020 happens. George Floyd is murdered by Derek Chauvin. And you have the largest protests in the history of the United States breakout. And I went back and I called all the people I'd interviewed already, dozens of people. And it was fascinating. All of them were either organizers or out there in the streets during the summer of 2020. And that made me realize that the, wow, this book is not just about rescuing these voices. It's also about explaining the largest protest in the history of the United States and explaining a facet of it that really hadn't been talked about, which is that one of the roads that led to 2020 runs straight, straight, straight through professional sports, amateur sports, and the playing fields of the United States. So your book in the beginning talks about the origin of Colin Kaepernick kneeling with discussing um, the topic with Nate Boyer, um, who I believe served in the military and also played in the NFL as well. And I believe I remember seeing that conversation vividly on like television, but yet that's left out of this narrative. It's never brought up. And I just wanted to ask you through your research, what is kind of the Nate Boyer part of this? And I understand he's a small part of this, but I just feel like Colin Kaepernick, I mean, well, Nate Boyer, yeah, Nate Boyer plays kind of like this critical historical role in all this. And, you, you sure. know, throughout history, you know, if you're history head, like I'm a history head, it's always interesting how somebody, maybe somebody who's somewhat anonymous can alter the entire course of everything through a very uh, basic interaction. The most infamous is, you know, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, which helped spark World War I. Uh, but, you know, the, all these like little moments can create big history. And Nate Boyer, I'm not comparing him to the assassin of Archduke Ferdinand. That wouldn't be very nice. But he was somebody who intervened at this particular moment and changed the course of everything because uh, Colin Kaepernick was sitting before the anthem. He was sitting on the bench behind his teammates. He did it out of frustration. There was no uh, effort put behind the gesture. It was just, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. As he said, there are dead bodies in the streets and police are getting away with murder. And he was just done with it. And he just, he reaped this incredible whirlwind of criticism of what he was doing. And it was quickly reshaped to say, well, he's actually doing this against the military or he's actually doing this against the country, the flag. And no matter how many times he said, no, it's about police violence. It's about racial inequity. You know, that was sort of pushed aside. So he talked with Nate Boyer and Nate Boyer said to him, like, look, you know, this is bothering a lot of military families, but, you know, we went to war so you would have the freedom and the right to do this in the first place. So how about you take a knee instead of sitting on the bench and you take a knee in front of your teammates instead of sitting behind them? Because taking a knee is kind of like this gesture of respect. So you're both respecting the ceremony and you're also uh, practicing civil disobedience. You're doing both at the same time. And Colin Kaepernick agreed to this. And it's almost comical that they thought taking a knee would calm the waters 
because all it did was send them storming. I mean, and I think I've been actually having a lot of discussions with a lot of folks since the book came out about what is it about that knee that immediately proved so attractive to so many athletes and at the same time also proved itself to be something that enraged NFL franchise owners, enraged a section of fans, enraged police unions, that one gesture. And that there, there's a power to it. Like if, if I took a knee at a Maryland State Fair or if I took a knee at the Super Bowl in the Jerry Dome, uh, you know, everyone would know immediately what I was doing and why I was doing it. There, there, there's this universality to it that is incredibly strong. And I think it's only gotten really stronger with time. I mean, there's been an effort to appropriate it, which we can discuss, uh, but there's also a power to it. And, you know, when um, I was just in Minneapolis and there's George Floyd uh, Square there with all these murals and artwork, I was just there a couple of days ago. And I thought it was like, fascinating that looming and as one of the murals in the square is Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. I mean, this, this direct sense of connection between one and the other. And that connection is usually, well, we tried this peacefully and you chose not to listen. Now you're telling us, why don't we be peaceful? Well, that's, you know, you had your chance basically was just the, the rhetoric, a lot of which I heard so that's the knee gesture. And, um, you know, it's it, it, like I said, it's something I'm, I'm still examining because I, I do find it fascinating the way it, it really seems to both inspire and upset people when it really is something very humble. It's, it's an interesting juxtaposition as well when you think uh, that just a year or two earlier, uh, obviously at a different time and in a different context, Tebow was kneeling yes. and that was... That was a meme for for a long time, uh, you know, Tebowing specifically. <laughs> That's so funny because if someone took a knee now, no one would think you're Tebowing. That was almost like a fad. That was like the, the like the Rubik's cube of gestures. And uh, Colin, Colin Kaepernick is going to stand the test of time. I mean, th there's also the uh, of course the the brutal juxtaposition of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck and. You go to the protests in 2020, I saw so many signs that juxtaposed those two images. I mean, it's something that people immediately grasped as a, a very brutal reflection you know, of, of a peaceful gesture. Is there any feeling from Kaepernick and the other athletes? I mean, obviously, um, a, a protest of this magnitude um, isn't meant to be something that that is smooth necessarily. It's, it's going to attract attention, but is is there any feeling from them in um, ways moving forward to bring people, maybe people on the opposing side, into this conversation, or is that something that just in our current uh, political dialogue as a country is is an impossibility? Yeah, I don't know what we if we can't bring people together around vaccines in the middle of a deadly pandemic. I mean, I'm, I'm a little lost about what we can bring people together on at this point. <laughs> I think what Colin Kaepernick did, which was very uh, not intentional. It's so interesting. I, like a lot of what I think what Colin Kaepernick did in this effect was without intent. I don't think he I mean, I've met Colin Kaepernick. I've interviewed Colin Kaepernick like he trust me when I say he's just not the quote unquote type 
to have sparked a mass movement. He's the type to be a part of a mass movement. I mean, he's very committed to ideas of liberation and grassroots change, mm -hmm. but he's also the, I, I, I was at one of his Know Your Rights conferences and I kept thinking, you know, this, this is, you know, this is the sort of guy who wants to be like, who's being thrust into being a mass leader and he would be very content being just a rank and file foot soldier. I mean, he was like making sure that all the kids at this Know Your Rights camp is like a couple hundred kids in Chicago. He was making sure like they all had their lunches and that they all knew where the snacks were and like where the water was. Like he was taking care of stuff on like a granular level. And he's very, 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 very smart. But when it came time to him to speak in front of the, the whole group, I mean, he's shy. You know, he has a, a sh very shy affect. And it's interesting. Like I interviewed somebody who played with him and was in the locker room with him. And he said, you know, Colin Kaepernick always liked hanging out with the, with the backup lineman. And that's rare for a quarterback. I mean, I, I don't even want to say other situations where I know it operates differently because I'd be speaking a little bit out of school, but let's just say it's not uncommon for teams to feel like the quarterback is aloof and apart from them, the favorite of the coach, the person who has their own individual coach and not someone who's like of the crowd, so to speak, and of the team. And this has been traditional in the NFL. And in 1987, when the NFL players went on strike, there was actually a faction with inside the union called the quarterbacks club of people who didn't want to go on strike. So th this is not a new thing. And Colin Kaepernick, um, uh, quote unquote, violated that, you know, because I mean, so much of the NFL is authoritarian and everybody's got to know their role and shut their mouth. And he was already showing rebellion in ways before he became really politicized. Uh, the tattoos was a rebellion, the kissing of the arms in the end zone, which pissed people off so much for some, he was already pissing people off in other words. Um, and yet uh, he was also, I think, foreshadowing who he would be the way he would hang out with folks on the team. Uh, one person told me a story of when Kaepernick, he was a spokesperson for Beats by Dre, and they sent him like uh, just headphone, you know, like just some swag. And he's just giving it out to people in the locker room like it's uh, like he's Santa Claus or something, you know? I mean, it's just, just a different kind of cat and very important to this story. But, you know, the book's called The Kaepernick Effect. It's not even really about Colin Kaepernick. It's about the young people he inspired because he's going to fill the airwaves with his own voice a lot in the next year. I, I mean, Netflix specials, books, there's no doubt there's going to be this really big reemergence of Colin Kaepernick where he's explaining to the world exactly who he is. And so that's just not the book I wanted to write. You know, like I wanted to write about what would otherwise be forgotten, which is all the people that his gesture inspired and all the ways that them doing it affected their lives. Dave, I want to ask you um, about the summer of 2020 compared to now um, within the NBA specifically, because you talk about the, the young people in your book that was inspired by Colin Kaepernick and their inspiration was what was happening in their life specifically. They weren't doing it for popularity or for famous because they felt that, you know, their lives were in danger or police brutality was deeply affecting them. And I felt like just Matt and I had a lot of conversations in terms of the NBA boycotts and we, we talked about then, okay, what's going to happen a year from now with these, with these athletes? Are they still going to bring up police brutality, you know, in 2021, 2022, 2023, when it's not popular, when it's not in the media? And so far, you know, during this media day, there's been nothing brought up about that, yeah. to my knowledge, if you can correct me if I'm wrong. So yeah. I guess my question is, is, you know, with the young people that you've interviewed, 
is there is it possible for some resentment not not to call on Kaepernick specifically, but to athletes that were on the front lines in 2020 in terms of George Floyd and what was going on with police brutality, and now that you know it's not hip to talk about it anymore, so they're not on the front lines. And, but you know, still there's a lot of work to be done. A bill has not been passed, you know, in our government in terms of improving what's been happening. And I feel like. The, the players, at least in my opinion, have not really kept their end of the bargain so far. Am I wrong about that? Uh, well, I, I would just, it, it's, I don't even think it's so much as whether you're right or wrong, um, as much as it is that, you know, there's ebb and flow to this. And we got to understand, like, and that's the whole history of social movements, sports or not. You know, there's always ebb and flow, there's always ups and downs. When you read Parting the Waters, the biography of, of Martin Luther King, it's amazing, like in the late 1950s, right before the 60s explode, people are convinced the movement's dead. You know, it's like, okay, we had the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, we had some marches, it, there's nothing going on right now. And then of course, you know, 1960, Greensboro, the first sit-in, something that didn't involve King at all, and it electrified everything and changed everything. I feel like that's the atmosphere we're in. You know, like one thing could re-electrify everything that's going on right now. I think the wine is out of the bottle, so to speak. And the idea of an athlete using their platform for political purposes, I mean, that's out there. And it's taking a different form right now. I mean, this is one of the reasons why with the vaccine stuff, I think that's really why Media Day uh, didn't focus at all on the events of last year. It's just the, 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 the minority of players, and it is a small minority, but they are a very high profile of players who've said they're not getting the vaccine and who've liked conspiracy stuff online and have said all kinds of things that are just refuted by basic science. And, you know, and these are like very, very uh, thoughtful, in some cases at times, uh, brilliant people. And it's been jarring to see, to see them say stuff like this and to be cheered on by people like Tucker Carlson and Ted Cruz. But it's just to say that this has just sucked all the oxygen out of the room to the point of which th th there's there's not space to have those kinds of discussions during media day. So I wasn't surprised it didn't come up. Um, if I'd been there, I certainly would have talked about it. But this is where it's the Kaepernick effect part is so important because it's not even really about the pros. You know, they do have, I agree with what you're saying, like they, they, they do now have a responsibility to keep this going, as you put it, um, holding up their end of the bargain. Because, you know, they, they are now looked to as leaders. And when the thing about when you put yourself forward as a leader is people are going to expect you to lead, you know, and they have every right to do so. Um, but this is also about the high school kids. This is also about the folks in college. This is about the folks who are uh, sending me emails. I got one earlier this week of a little league team that took a knee or another one about a high school team that took a knee uh, because of racist Snapchat stuff that was going around the school. And. Uh, people held up BLM flags in the stands, and it was it was like this uh, political intervention in their own school of what they will or will not tolerate. I, I think this is something that's not going anywhere. It's going to continue to be part of the language of sports, whether the pros use their power to amplify the movement, which to me is the best use of professional athletes in a larger movement struggle, is they can be like the great amplifiers for what's happening. Uh, that we need to see, but it's a tinderbox to me. It's like, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to set it off. We don't know which player is going to be the one to say, I've had enough of this. 
Uh, but it is going to happen. I think we have to wait, though. I think the, the, the vaccination stuff, of course, to me, is a political issue. Um, LeBron said it's not about it's not like it's an issue like racism or police brutality. I'm not going to tell anybody anything. And he said it explicitly it's not a political issue. I think that's wrong. Um, this is a political issue. It's about uh, solidarity. It's about community health. It's about uh, caring about your teammates and your and the family members of your teammates. It's not some individual issue. And um, I, I think this issue, though, is going to for a while eat up all the oxygen to have the kinds of discussions that I think, frankly, we'd be better off having. Uh, so we're just going to have to see how that plays itself out. And I'm saying this as somebody who lives in a house that is super duper wizards centric. Um, <laughs> and we're going to a ton of games this year. I mean, we love the whiz and obviously our favorite player. Yeah, there you go. Love <laughs> See, just here. To represent. Right on. Um, and so Bradley Beal, it's we like like Bradley Beal's, you know, picture is up in our house for goodness sakes. It's like we want the best Bradley Beal. <laughs> and 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 it's and so even like disagreeing with him about this is almost like is like painful because it's like ah not you Brad anybody but Brad and uh, but you know but that, that, that's not going to stop us from loving basketball but if if Brad gets sick or he gets someone sick that's going to be really hard to to deal with and take because it's so avoidable um I I wanted to ask you you know you mentioned some of the um corporate ties that Kaepernick has, some of the corporate backing that he has, you know, with like Netflix getting behind him. Mm -hmm. um, is there any feeling or sense that you've gotten from, um, you know, the, the wide variety of folks that you've interviewed that these corporations are acting in good faith here in trying mm -hmm. to maybe make amends for some things in the past or, um, you know, to put it kind of bluntly, uh, is, is this kind of like a, a hush money kind of thing, you know, mm. like, like an HR based kind of thing, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if that's a little cynical. Um, no, no, but, no. Uh, do you get a sense of, of, um, what they feel with, with the corporate sponsorship of, you know, BLM that we saw in 2020 and beyond? Yeah. I mean, let, let's, I mean, you just said it. I mean, the first thing is, I don't think you're being cynical at all. I think this is conscious corporate strategy. I mean, they are trying to appeal to a generation that is more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. They're trying to connect with a generation that took to the streets in numbers like we've never seen before and in all 50 states in 2020. And so their ability to partner with a Colin Kaepernick, whether they're Ben and Jerry's, whether they're Nike or whether they're Netflix, it's good business sense for them. Uh, as for Colin Kaepernick, the, the general vibe from the folks I spoke with, and we did talk about that issue, is, you know, the guy's got to work. It was less like, is he selling out? Is this, is, this, is this corporate connection? Is this damaging? Could it ruin what he stood for? And it was much more like a shrug, like, well, the NFL's not paying him. So, you know, he's got to do something. And what else? I mean, if you're Colin Kaepernick, what are you going to do? You know, get a job at the post office? I mean, you're Colin freaking Kaepernick. You got to get a job doing actually being Colin Kaepernick. That's your number one commodity in on, on the open market. And so he's just trying to exercise that. And, um, and I get it. I get it. And the people I spoke to, it was interesting. It was like, they, they didn't care so much more because for them, Colin Kaepernick wasn't really the reason why they did it. He was the method 
for why they did it. But, you know, as I've said in other interviews, you know, they used, they said the name Trayvon Martin as an inspiration much more than they said the name Colin Kaepernick. I mean, that's where their heads were at. I didn't include this in the book, but I once had, um, when my son was, uh, in a third grade and that's how long it's been when Colin Kaepernick took that knee in 2016. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Can you take the dog over though, please? Thank you. Don't forget the food. Thank you. All right. That, that was for everybody's, uh, consumption. All right. Um, uh, when my son was in third grade, this friend of his came up to me and he said, I took a knee during the pledge of allegiance today. And I said, why? Cause you know, I said, why did you do that? And he said, because I really, really hate racism. And I said, wow, you're just like Colin Kaepernick. And he said to me, who's Colin Kaepernick? I mean, people don't believe me when I tell them that story, but that, that's a true story. Like, like he had, he had no, he knew what the knee was. He knew what to do during the anthem, uh, because uh, not the anthem, Pledge of Allegiance because of how he was feeling, but he wasn't connected to the sports end of it at all. And while everybody I spoke to knew who Colin Kaepernick was, of course, you know, th this was decidedly different this part of it. Dave, I want to ask you from tracking the Kaepernick effects from high school, college to pro, what were basically anything that surprised you in terms of how the effect affected different age groups in terms, because I just can't imagine, you know, these high schoolers should be focused on just having fun, they're kids, but they're engaged in this, you know, political activism. Was, was there anything that kind of surprised you in terms of the Kaepernick effect through these three phases in your book? Yeah, huge differences. I'm glad you asked the question because, you know, it was really an open question about how to actually organize the book. You know, do you do it by sport? Do you do it by gender? Do you do it? I mean, there are, there are, there are all sorts of ways you can think and figure it out and try to do it in different ways. I chose age because it quickly became apparent that the challenges for a high school student in stepping out there and taking a knee is very different than a college student, is very different than a professional. All three stages, there is risk. There is risk involved, and there's the specter of violence for doing it. That was a common thread through everything. But when you're a high school student, the act of doing it involves a certain kind of moxie and willingness to maybe look look for lack of a better term, just look dumb. You know, that's the great fear in high school, that you'll stand out in a way that's negative. And that fear was something that a lot of the folks I talked to really had to face and overcome in order to do it. But that's a high school thing. You know, in college, it was less about that and more about risking scholarships, more about risking your place in your, in your school, you know? I mean, people go to these schools to have a certain set of experiences and the idea that they would be denied that by being kicked off the team or even in some cases being forced to leave the school. I mean, that, that's a different kind of risk when you have to leave somewhere and go home. Uh, at the professional level, of course, we're talking paychecks and we're talking spotlight and that's its own kind of pressure. So that's why I divided the book into those three parts. So people could really um, marinate in the differentiation of these different stages and hopefully come away with a lot of respect for the young kids who to me are really the scaffolding of this whole thing. Keith, please let our viewers and listeners know where they can find you on social media and then where they can check out your podcast and anything else you're up to the rest of the year as well. Yeah, just, um, you know, I'm on Twitter at edge of sports. Uh, my DMS, I keep them open. So if I said anything that causes you to question anything or, or you, or you think I'm my, my head should fit up my ass, like, you know, send me a message.
It's fine. <laughs> I had no problem with that. But and, uh, before, you know, have me back to ahead. talk some hoops, though. Yeah, well, before I let you go, what is your ex- expectation for the Wizards? Uh, are you excited? Not yeah, excited? What's, really what's interesting team this that? year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking to my son about it a lot. <laughs> and our expectations for the Wizards are, are high, quite frankly. I mean, the last time Spencer Dinwiddie was on the court, he was a 20-7 and seven guy. I mean, don't you want that in your backcourt? I mean, with Bradley Beal. And in addition, it's like we're, we're excited about the adit. Montrez Harrell is, is an exciting guy to have on the team. Uh, Rui Hachimura, we think, is due for a breakout. Daniel Gafford was like the best kept secret in the league the last 20 games of the year. So there's a lot of there there to be excited about. I even like the way we drafted taking uh, Corey Kispert. It's like getting somebody who's a little older. You know, getting somebody who can contribute right away, getting someone who can actually hit a three. He's like the negation of Denny Avdia. He's like everything Denny Avdia isn't. Mature, can hit a three, and ready for the rotation. But even Denny, I'm excited to see where that goes. So I'm saying it right now, Washington Wizards, five seed. Wow, you heard it here. Get it, yeah, forget it, nope. People are going to think that's dumb, and they have every right to. But – if they tell me it's dumb when the Wizards are the five seed, I expect them to come to me like an adult and eat some of that humble pie. That's right. right. Well, I will say I do like the fit of Spencer Dinwiddie next to Bradley Beal a lot more than the fit of, uh, all due respect, the fit <laughs> of Russell Westbrook next to him. Uh, I think that's a better looking complete roster. Uh, and, and I said day one, I thought the Wizards won that trade. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. And, um, you know, Russell Westbrook, I mean, I've got so much love for this guy because every night during this pandemic year that was so weird, like he just put it all out on the court. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he had such a monster statistical season, but it really was like watching one of those old Michael Bay movies, like super entertaining, <laughs> but just wreck after wreck after explosion where you're just sort of like, what? <laughs> this is not a long. Like, like I want to bet, like how long it takes for LeBron to, uh, I don't know, rebel against Russ or have something come up. Because Russell Westbrook, remember when Jason Williams, uh, you know, White Chocolate, like toned everything down, and was actually the starting point guard for the Heat team that won a championship. Mm-hmm. People like that all the time because yeah. he was barely Jason Williams anymore yeah. at that point. Just yeah. played defense and didn't turn the ball over, like. Russ can't do that. Yeah. Russ is a train wreck, but he's a train wreck that is like the most beautiful, awesome train in the world that makes the most beautiful explosion possible. I love Russ. He made the last year so entertaining, and I'm a little bit relieved he's gone. Yeah, you can't help but love him if he's he's on your team. So oh. Dave, Dave, I'm a Rockets fan, so we, okay. we had him right before you guys. Um, and... I mean, same thing. Like you love the heart, but it's kind of a train wreck. Uh, yeah. Like you said, I think the Michael Bay analogy is perfect. <laughs> it's a lot, man. It's like the Marvel movies that go two hours and 45 minutes. And it's like <laughs> over after a while. Like, okay, very good. Yep. <laughs> end? Yeah. I feel yeah. I've talked to some Lakers fans and they seem optimistic, but I think they know the ending to the story in terms of the dynamic with Westbrook and LeBron, both ball heavy, you know, athletes. I just don't know how they're going to coexist. I just don't see it. 
Yeah, with, with Mello too. I mean, yeah. it's gonna be. It's gonna this. I yeah. mean, if Russ alone is a Michael Bay movie, this is like all the Fast and Furious movies put together. Including <laughs> kerosene with everybody wearing uh, a fire suit. Crazy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, well, we'll have to have you on the mid midpoint of the season to see how everything is going either way. Happy. I think it's going to be very interesting. Happy to assess with you all. Appreciate it, Dave. Not Thanks so very much, much for your time. Oh, <laughs> no problem. Be, be well, fellas. <laughs>